This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Howdy folks, Carl Jorn here, Pioneer Field Agronomist in Northwest Indiana. Welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Today we'll be visiting with Dr. Darcy Talenko, uh, talking all things field diseases and what we can do actively to manage for them this year. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined as always by my colleagues and co-hosts, Brian Trader and Ben Jacob. How are you guys? Very good, Carl. Glad to be here this morning. Good as well, Carl. Okay, good deal. Well, we're recording this episode on the 17th of July with a publication for the 19th. Um, since then, we've had uh, a little bit of activity in the field uh, from both a precipitation standpoint and disease development standpoint. So we are, uh, we're tickled to have Darcy on. So Dr. Tolenko, thank you for allowing some of your time uh, to be spent with us today during the height of your busy season. Um, I know our growers are very much looking forward to hearing your insights and perspective as we talk about how to manage for field diseases. But before we get there, would you be so kind as to give us the tale of uh, Darcy Talenko and uh, kind of how you uh, got started in this realm of uh, field crops and plant pathology? I, I guess a little bit. I come from a dairy farm in western New York. Um, so I grew up on the farm and did a lot with extension and 4-H back in the day. Um, I knew I wanted to do applied plant sciences, um, so went to Cornell and got a degree in biology, and then Southern Illinois working in soybeans. That's where I dove into the plant pathology track. SDS and macrophemina were the two uh, diseases I worked on there for my master's. From there, I went a little further south and worked in North Carolina on peanut diseases, and then stayed around there in Virginia and Florida working in peanut, cotton, tobacco. Um, uh, not any tobacco, but bean cotton, uh, soybean, corn, wheat. Um, I did a little turf grass um, in Florida um, and then made a full circle back home and worked in vegetables for four years before I came to uh, Purdue. Uh, I've been here about five years now. Um, so when I started at Purdue in uh, 2018, a tar spot landed in my lap of, of a new disease and trying to figure out what was going on with that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that leads to a very uh, convenient segue, Darcy. But man, as growers are listening to this conversation, I'm sure a lot of them are thinking, those are some interesting uh, crop rotations that they're not accustomed to hearing about, talking about peanuts and cotton and your time in turf grass. So you bring a, a diverse wealth of experience to uh, to the conversation today. We're grateful for that. So Darcy said tar spot shows up up in 2018 not to say that your research has been you know focused explicitly on that but it's it a lot of resources have been allocated through your program on tar spot uh, i think it's fair to say that from a national perspective you're looked at if not the leader one of the leaders in contributing to our understanding of how to manage for this disease uh, you guys found it uh, here a couple weeks ago. I know closer to home for us in uh, the Lafayette area, Benton County turned on uh, with a Friday confirmation. Would you like to share uh, your perspective on tar spot management or what you found uh, for the 2023 season? And then we could take it into a management conversation from there. Yeah. yeah, so those samples that have come in right now for 2023 are extremely low. It's those first finds. I mean, my, my students are out looking really closely and trying to really find one or two lesions. So probably we've had, you know, three or four samples come in. So two or three, maybe maximum three lesions on that. I think mostly one or two lesions on those leaves to confirm those counties. So these first reports are very very small severity, low severity. Um, corn that's probably had the moisture conditions, got planted early. Those are the those are the fields that I think we're finding it in first. Um, mainly what this map turning it on is saying is get out and look. 
Um, if we talk about what are we going to do with this, it's, it's telling us to get out and start looking for it. It is active in that canopy and in those fields that have a history, it's going to be in that lower canopy where we're going to find it first. Um, that, that's fair. Probably doing more hunting for tar spot than we are, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, scouting at the moment. Right. Uh, Darcy, this year we we saw a lot of tar spot bloom up earlier in the Western Corn Belt, thinking central Iowa and around that neighborhood. Uh, I know that uh, climatology is not your background. We're going to talk with Beth here um, in a coming episode, but curious as to your thoughts or theories as to why they saw tar spot earlier than what we did this year, when traditionally it seems like uh, we're one of the first first uh, locales for it to, to begin its journey each year? Well, there's a couple factors that come into play there. Traditionally, we're the area where the disease was first found and it's been here mm -hmm. a long time. So we've had the multiple years of building up the inoculum to be found. Now that it's moved west and into the, you know, Iowa and, and Kansas last year, the first time, you know, they now have the inoculum and it depends on the weather conditions, whether it's going to kick in. And, and I think if we look, um, working with Damon Smith and the tar spot model um, and looking at some of that, they had those rainfall events and, and moisture events that triggered the start of the disease. So finally, the, you know, those are the few, few things to think about. Is the inoculum been in the region? And then are we in conducive conditions for the disease to start? And I think in Kansas, where they have a little more higher severity that I've seen, um, their corn is further ahead, right? And so there, there's there's all there's all these factors that come into play. Um, we do I do think there's probably a, a host interaction, like a growth stage where it really triggers whether the disease is going to become active or not, in addition to those weather conditions and having the inoculum. So they found at first, I think their corn was ahead of ours. They had right rain events in Iowa that triggered it to come. Even though they were dry, we had those fluctuations in, in those right conditions to trigger the spores to be released. Um, reminding that, you know, it takes... 14, 21 days for us to really see those first stromata after the infection. So that initial infection takes a period of time. So if we go backwards in time, there was conditions where the the app was red and then it, it dropped back. But again, we also need to think about where was the corn? Um, so right now we're finally approaching, you know, tassel and parts of the states as highly variable in a field, but we weren't, where we were red, the corn was still too young a month ago, right? And generally we want to trigger the app when we're V8 beyond. And so now as the corn has moved into those growth stages, now we're looking at, we have the weather conditions been conducive. We've seen where the spores have been released here in Indiana, um, but I just pulled the app up today and our conditions look less favorable than they were a couple of weeks ago. So how about um, that? Okay. Interesting. But then again, we just had this rain. So maybe in another two weeks, we'll trigger it again because it's going to take that rainfall period. And, and the idea behind the app is it's telling us that the disease is increasing in the crop canopy. Um, so we need to get it started and then make an informed decision if we're going to put a fungicide out or not. So for those listeners that aren't uh, as well acquainted, Darcy, the Tar Spotter app, you can go ahead and find that on your Google Play Store and the Apple um, App Store, and, and one might be able to find that. Memory serves, you put in your your uh, GPS coordinates when mm -hmm. a field was planted, and then after that, it should have the information that it needs more or less to to give you an indication of whether or not they suspect the tar spot will be present. Is that ballpark? Yeah, that's pretty true. So I don't know if you can I don't know if you can see that on the screen. Yeah, there it um, is. Great. But um, so I have all my fields listed. You can see that, and so you can go in and put all sorts of fields. So I have plots across the state that I list. And then when you go in there, you need to say certain things to trigger the app. So it needs to have no fungicide in the last 14 days and then be within mm -hmm. that V8 to R4 growth stages when we know the disease. That's when we're worried about managing the disease. So the idea is the app is going to tell you we've had the weather conditions conducive. We're in the right growth stage. 
is it time to spray a fungicide or should we get, you know, and, and or this early on, I would use it to say, get out and scout and see if you can find it. Cause I, you yes. know, from our work, we have time to make that first detection, find it in the lower canopy to protect that upper canopy. Now we do need to stay ahead of it. And so um, I've also seen, you know, fungicides not being able to work when we wait too long. Like if we got disease up in that upper canopy and we're 5% or more, we won't be able to slow it down. But you have time from what we've seen. There's a, there's, there's a period there where the disease remains relatively low that we have time to find it, to say, yes, it's active. We have conducive conditions in our farm. Yes, let's make sure we have the airplanes ready to go to or spray equipment ready to go to put that fungicide to protect it. Um, this disease, when the, you know, on those favorable years, let me say like 18 and 21 were our two favorable years where we got hit really hard. Mm -hmm. um, this disease is going to show you how well we get our sprays out there and how long they last because it, under favorable conditions, it's going to attack um, any of those rapidly green tissue. If we don't have good green tissue, if the corn is droughty and stressed, it's not going to permit, it's not, the, the disease is not going to be favorable as well. This disease really likes green, healthy corn. The years we're thinking we're going to have a bumper crop is also, also the years in those areas where I think the disease is going to be more prevalent. No, that, that makes great sense. If, if I recall correctly, uh, Brian Ben, when we were out in Johnston, I think Nate Klaszewski came out, uh, formerly from University of Illinois, discussing, uh, it's, I think it was probably January of 19, so right after we had our first big-time experience in the region with tar spot. And at that time, Darcy, he was suggesting that there's something to maybe when you have canopy, you know, when you have row closure, and if that creates a microclimate uh, that is better suited for the for the uh, tar spot spores to be released. So to your point, if there's some indicator of growth stage or something, you know, that it takes for the for the spores to make that that infection. Uh, don't want to focus on that too much, but you talked about the inoculum that we have in the region. A lot of growers, this this may be their first year that they will have experienced tar spot. Some are tar spot veterans. Uh, if you haven't had tar spot in your field of corn, does that mean that you're vulnerable? Um, or does that mean that, you know, you've kind of got, a, a I guess, a, the force field up. And since you haven't had it there before, you don't have to worry about having it. Well, I would say that's not up. Um, so the disease is going to move. And so once it's active in the Midwest, we have those spores moving around that, especially if you look at our heat maps and that that northern Indiana region. But we have pockets. So there are pockets down in the south of southern Indiana where we've had severe disease. Um, so maybe you don't think you had it on your farm. Um, maybe it was there in a low level. And then all of a sudden, you know, it depends on the what environmental conditions, whether it's going to be up. So I would say if you haven't experienced it, just be aware of it and be monitoring for it. And just when you're out scouting for everything else, you know, keep an eye out for that. Um, we definitely can see at the end of the season, you know, you can see if the disease has really been there. Usually, usually tries to come out even past the point of where it's not going to affect yield. Uh, but just know if it's in your region, just be aware of it. Um, be looking for it, I guess, if they haven't seen it. I mean, those guys that have had tar spot, you know, they've, they've, dealt with it since 2018. Um, they, they have an idea of how they best want to manage it. Um, but they're out, you know, monitoring. I mean, we all were worried in 2022. And then we had a droughty field season that, that the risk was low. And so they didn't need to manage it. And so I just don't want them to be complacent, you know, because we I've seen I've been in fields where I know it was probably in the previous corn crop that they didn't find at a low level. And that was the, the source of the disease two years later. Um, that being said, you know, I think in the upper Midwest, we have enough inoculum, but once it's going, it's going to move from field to field with our weather systems. 
Yep. Yep. That's fair. Okay. So just put a fine point on just because you haven't had, it doesn't mean that you, uh, you won't experience it. And for those growers that have, you know, it came in late, uh, maybe impacted harvest standability, didn't impact yield. Know that for those sequential crops, that inoculum is, you know, it, it is, I guess, within your field. And so be prepared to fight it for future seasons. Um, so, uh, other things that that I noted as you were talking there, Darcy, um, you mentioned a V8 uh, application or V8 timing uh, is the earliest that one would consider. I know it depends on the year. Uh, what have you guys seen to be the most, uh, I guess, consistent return uh, for a grower as they're managing tar spot in terms of fungicide application timing? I recognize this is a it's a fully loaded question because one has to consider irrigation where it is that you exist in the state um you know if you've had tar spot in the past uh what the presence of other leaf diseases are what's your hybrid tolerance to those diseases i know that that's not a fair question to ask but some of the things that folks should consider as they're evaluating if they are a leading edge grower and looking at the research that your group has put out on fungicide timing what should they think about beyond the bar charts yeah, so I would say, you know, if you're going to pick one timing, we've seen an optimum timing going at our standard VTR1 all the way up to R2, R3. So there is a window in there that if you're going to spray a fungicide, um, you can just pick one time that's going to work there, knowing that this is the one disease that's going to show the limitations of our fungicides and the fact that that once they're beyond their activity window, it as long as there's green tissue to, there and in a conducive environment, it's going to move back in. Right. And so the idea is we want to lay the fungicides where we're going to protect the most yield. Um, so the one year where we did see that multiple applications in our research was effective was that 21 year where we went out at that late vegetative V8, V10 application and then came back in three or four weeks later with a second application. And that's the one year where we saw enough disease management to pay for both fungicide applications, right? Yes. Um, to get the return on that investment of a fungicide. So I would say, you know, I would look at your corn, you know, how how well is it growing this season? Is it is it gotten the moisture it needs or are we still hurting um, from the droughty conditions that we've had? Um, and then look at the disease packages, you know, what, are, what do you want to manage with the fungicide? You know, is gray leaf spot a concern? Um, or, you know, are we worried about, south we haven't seen southern rust move in yet, but, you know, that would be the southern part. They might be worried about southern rust. It's still in southern United States, so I'm not quite worried about it yet. Um, but are there other diseases, you know, do you worry about vomitoxin and Dawn? And so then we need to be spraying at that silking stage to protect. So we don't want to switch, right? So you got to make a decision on what, what is the disease risk on your farm or in that field to make a decision on the best timing. Um, and so if I could, and if I know the disease is moving in late or it hasn't moved in, I might hold on to it. So we make sure we can get that, you know, get that R3 to R5 protection um, to get us to black layer. So that's the question is how, how much of the season do we need to control the disease? Um, and how many life cycles we'll have with this, this pathogen that, you know, has multiple infection uh, cycles that are occurring when we start early? No, oh, that, that's great. I guess a, a pet question, uh, Darcy. Uh, Tar spot, polycyclic disease. What other diseases do we uh, battle in the state of Indiana on corn that are anywhere close to uh, how tar spot manifests, or is this a totally uh, new type of creature that we're that we're fighting here? So I, I'd say southern rust is the one disease that would be a disease on corn where you could see the rapid um, development within a canopy where we know it's you know a week between spore spore to spore, spore landing and spores being generated, where those mm -hmm. pockets could blow up if they came in early enough. So this is this disease kind of uh, works like that in corn. 
I would say in general with gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf, but we know they can move up in the canopy. We have time to control them. And one fungicides worked really well for controlling those diseases. Um, we're just not used to a disease like this uh, moving. So when it, when it gets going, if you haven't been scouting and you don't see the disease in the field, you know, and it's there, your crop can be blighted in two weeks when we've seen a severe epidemic. So that's the problem is you got to be out there looking for it, not just doing a drive-by. Yes. For this one. Uh, that's great. What, uh, ask an agronomist, get, get an answer. So we all have different, uh, you know, theories as to how to, how to best leverage tools like fungicides. Uh, this time of year, there are airplanes that are out and about flying. Um, when I get asked the question about how to how to leverage a fungicide in a tar spot area, uh, I often posit to the grower, if you're only going to get two to three weeks of activity, you want to ensure that we're protecting the, the upper part of the canopy as we're going through the grain fill stages, unless you're willing to pay for a second application. Well, now we're talking we have four to six weeks of activity, which could get us more or less through the entire pollination to maturity. So for folks that only go with that one that one timing, uh, Darcy, you're talking about we can't be too late on our fungicide application. So that threshold that growers should be scouting for, I heard you mention 5% um, is kind of when you start to see that we're, we're too far gone. How would you advise growers to scout if uh, if they've been looking for tar spot um, or if they're just not as as well acquainted with this disease? How, how would you instruct somebody to go out in their field and quote unquote scout? So those fields that have a history, um, we can find it in the lower canopy. So I'm looking at my knee level, you know, those first really uh -huh. open leaves of the knee level. Um, I'm going to pick areas in the field where we might have a little longer moisture period. So under near the tree lines or where, you know, we know we've gotten a lot of extra moisture. I'm going to go into those sure. areas and see if I can identify it. Um, and then it's just keeping an eye out. I mean, right now it's still hard. I was out, you know, looking two hours an acre or research farm West Lafayette didn't find anything, you know, in one field, you know, you can wander around thinking you see black spots, but you, you know, that's the <laughs> thing. Um, and I think once you, you have time to find in that lower canopy to make, make a decision in the upper canopy, it's just, we've seen, I've seen failure in our timed uh, fungicide applications where let's just say we did an R4 application, but the mm -hmm. disease was already 7% in that year leaf. Like, so we yes. missed it and it never changed the disease curve from the untreated. Like, so we couldn't back off because we, you know, we're only seeing the infections coming out that's been there for two weeks. We don't see what's already, you know, what's been further, the infection has moved in that leaf. So you got to get a, you got to be finding it at that one to less than one you know, percent, you know, one or two lesions. But I think you'll be able to see them if you're looking for it in that lower canopy to then say, okay, it's here. Even if you have a few lesions on that upper ear leaf, you, you could still slow it down. But it's when we get that 5%, I think we're not going to, it's too late. So I, I guess... Because I was in fields in that 21 season where they had sprayed multiple fungicides and they didn't do anything. And the problem was, I think they waited, they started too late. And so yep. we missed that window. So we got to stay, we got to be ahead of the game. We got to kind of be right where the disease is starting to protect against it once we're in those conducive conditions and the right, what do I say, growth stage for the crop. Perfect. Darcy, uh, one of the questions that we get a lot kind of around this timing piece is what application method is good you know certainly for years we've relied on airplanes and helicopters for application a lot of folks now have high clearance sprayers because they can react and control the timing on that and especially with tar spot because the timing of application is so critical you know you've also got now the addition of uh, farmer-owned drones that can make applications so when you think about this in terms of application method 
Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, aerial application from an airplane helicopter standpoint to the drone versus ground application? It, do you have a preference? Do we have any research I, or data that suggests that one's better than the other? I don't have any research or data that's looked at one or the other. We are trying to look at, um, the sh we started last year, but we didn't have enough disease on the drone, looking at drones versus our high voice sprayer or backpack to see where the canopy. This is the one disease though, that's not gonna let you get away with a poor coverage through the mm -hmm. canopy. So this is the one disease, you may have gotten a good coverage with gray leaf spot or northern corn leaf blight, but it's gonna show you how well that coverage was and how far into the canopy it, it penetrated. And I it, I think it comes down to how are you making sure that the, the individual applications going on appropriately, are we getting the right coverage down through the canopy? Um, but it's going it, to, I mean, even under the best circumstances, you know, if the leaves were folded, I've seen areas where they didn't get the coverage in the center piece of the leaf and, and it's moved right in, right up that, that leaf. Um, and I can go in the, you know, fields and see that, you know, the lower leaves are completely covered in tar spot, but we've covered that middle to upper canopy, which is the goal. So I'm just going to come back to how well the coverage was along that boom or whatever they're spraying with, where they're getting the coverage. Um, and this is the one disease that's going to show us yes or no, we did get the coverage we needed. So when when one's uh, figuring on gallons per acre, if they are in a ground rig, we'd much rather be uh, closer to that 20 than we would be 10 uh, in terms of carrier volume uh, this time of year. Yeah, coverage is key. Um, Brian, I know there's folks that say that they like the helicopter. They like the concept of the drone uh, in terms of, you know, if we can penetrate deeper in the canopy with the, you know, with, I guess, the upper canopy getting stirred about. But yeah, to Darcy's point, it's... Uh, I think it really comes down to what the applicator is, you know, what, what's their ability to, um, if they're in a ground rig, not run over corn. Um, if they're in the, if they're in the airplane, one pilot is not the same as another. There's, there's some big differences in terms of, uh, you know, the efficacy in which, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe efficacy is not the proper term, but how well uh, they're able to cover the majority of the field. So um, I, I know it takes all kinds to get, fungicides on this time of year but but yeah there's there's some that are better than others in that regard well and i think a lot of this is timing i think the reason that we see in the countryside when we visit with the growers that we do that there's this increase in ground rigs is because you can tr control that as a grower if you see a situation and timeliness is as important on tar spot and really other diseases as well if i'm ready to spray i can go out to my barn lot i can get my sprayer out i can make that application where oftentimes um, large blocks of acres are accumulated in order to have some of these other applications done that are custom applied and that can be problematic for controlling this you know tar spot or any other disease really yeah, fair enough. Guys, any myths that we'd like to have Dr. Talenko bust here as we're talking tar spot or any common questions we haven't had a chance to ask her? I know we got a little deep, um, you know, for the sake of some folks that aren't acquainted with tar spot, but those that are, I think we did have a very good conversation there. One that I might ask Darcy, any impact on tillage? Uh, would you would you suggest that no-till acres are more greatly, I guess, impacted than those are that are conventionally tilled or uh, we're having a minimal effect by changing tillage practice here? So we've done a little work looking at a no-till versus a tilled situation with tar spot across the region. Um, and we can see initially that we probably slow down the disease in that canopy because in the no-till situation, we're leaving the residue, the residue's there not been buried, not been attacked by other microorganisms to then release the spores. But I would say 
don't change your tillage practices because yeah. once these that initial infection starts from that that field wherever it's overwintered, but then once we move into those secondary cycles, we have spores moving from field to field, county to county across the states, and so it's really you know tillage rotation. They really aren't going to be as big on influencing tar spot versus finding them. You know, if we can find hybrids with good resistance packages, you know, we have some out there that have some tolerance to tar spot. But moving forward, if we can build that into not only just relying on the fungicides, we got to layer in those multiple effects to try to minimize the disease impact. But yeah, so we've seen a little bit where we see a, a reduction in, in spores by, you know, burying some of that debris. But I don't think it's going to persist as one, as we move into those secondary cycles. Fair enough. You did uh, bring up, Darcy, the, the genetic component to all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. One would suggest that there are differences from hybrid to hybrid, but perhaps nobody's invulnerable uh, to, to tar spot. Is that a fair way to characterize things? Yeah, so from what I've seen um, for the some of the hybrids that we look at, we, we've looked at, you know, looking at a susceptible versus moderately tolerant is what we called it in, our, in some of our work that we've done in the last couple of years. And we can see where the moderately tolerant limits the development of the disease. I almost see sometimes you can see the spore shower that happened, which was a lot, but then mm -hmm. it doesn't let the development of the, the, the tar spot occur within that leaf. I can also see at the end of this, you know, as we uh, approach the end of the season, as the plant shutting down, you can start seeing the disease take off into the, the, that canopy. So it's slowed it down, whatever was acting on that interaction between the host and the pathogen, slowed the disease down. But then it, you know, once it, that shut off, the disease could move, you know, further in as long as there was green tissue to infect. Um, where, you know, I do see an effect, of, even with the moderately tolerant lines, we can minimize the disease in that crop canopy. And mm -hmm. we could keep it at that, like, below 5% level. Um, so maybe we didn't need that fungicide, or we wouldn't get that stepped effect with a fungicide because we already kept it at a low level. Um, so depending on the year, you know, you might be able to just get away with, you know, good moderate tolerance in a hybrid, like in a year like last year, then you may not have really needed to worry about a fungicide application. But in then in years that are highly favorable, the disease is going to be pushed through, I think, no matter what we do. And so we need to be ready to layer in some of those additional tactics. Fair enough. Always be scouting is what I took away from that, Darcy. Yeah, no, always uh, be scouting and, and try to layer in our management as we can. And as we get more hybrids that have had uh, good data to show that they've got better tolerance or resistance, or we identify genes that provide resistance, I think that's going to help us move forward with having less impact with this disease. Yeah, no, that's great that you're seeing in your own screening that there is a difference amongst, I guess, hybrids that are sold within the industry. And there are some that in a, a more moderate pressure year uh, could could get by without uh, then you know, necessitating necessarily a, uh, you know, very aggressive management from fungicide perspective. Brian, did you have something to add? Yeah, Carl, I guess one of the questions that I have is I think about this disease, it, it certainly seems to be more aggressive maybe than gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blight in our canopies. And I guess I'm curious, Dr. Tolenko, is that a factor of how much it sporulates compared to those other diseases? Is it just more of an aggressive disease? Is it because of this situation where our hybrids are not as tolerant to it? Why does tar spot seem to be more uh, detrimental to our yield than some of the other diseases that we we deal with? Even I would say maybe Ben Southern Rust, it, it maybe even is more aggressive than Southern Rust in terms of its yield impact. And so w why would we why are we seeing that difference, maybe? Well, I, I don't think we have the answer to all of that, but I would say the first thing is, you know, we we were not breeding for tar spot 10 years ago, right? So first okay. of all, we weren't selecting hybrids for at least in U.S. 
um, for trying to beat resistance. So we were, you know, we've been selecting hybrids that have better tolerance and resistance to gray leaf spot and other corn leaf plant, the other diseases. And then secondary, we still are trying to learn the biology of what's going on with this this pathogen. And because of its obligate nature and, and it's really difficult to to culture and grow in the greenhouse mm -hmm. and other things, we're we're limited on what we can learn on the biology. I, you know, for some of the work that we've seen, you know, we know it's getting into that leaf and you can't see some of the, the stuff that's going on, but that that structure is pretty much consuming that whole leaf material between that where that black structure is. That's all been consumed beneath it, right? So um, but the the aggressiveness, I don't know if it's putting out more spores or not. We haven't looked at comparing that to gray leaf spot on, on the number of spores being released, but the polycyclic nature, I think it just, once it gets in, it's, it's readily infecting and moving up that leaf and we're seeing more infections occur. So I think there's, uh, what we're seeing is probably there's two different kind of cycles going on. You have the infection on the leaf and multiple cycles going within a, on a leaf where it's releasing spores that may not be, be released in the upper canopy. Mm -hmm. um, and just moving in and infecting that whole leaf. And then there's the movement of the, the big spore releases that we're um, trying to document as they move in the canopy. We're trying to get the tools together. So we do, we are running some spore traps all season long across the region. Um, problem is we can't really quantify them in the wintertime at this point in time um, to see what happened and go backwards on when were the spores, when were these spore flushes occurring. Hopefully, you know, in the, in the future, we'll be able to, you know, do live real-time spore detection on here we've had a spin. So the idea will be layering in our management. Here we've had the major spore release. We have the optimum weather conditions we've identified and the plant is at the right stage to say, okay, the risk is now, you know, we can hone in on that definition of when we need to really be out there protecting and spraying for the crop. Brian, I might, I might interject that, you know, I, Dr. Slanko made some really good points, but I think if we go back and, and look at it historically, um, we've had some epidemic years of gray leaf spot, right? I mean, for us personally, 3394, um, you know, maybe if we sprayed fungicides in the 90s, it, it would it would have lasted a little longer and not had quite as violent of a death. Um, the other thing I want to bring up is the difference between tar spot and southern rust since they've been compared a couple of times here is that southern rust doesn't overwinter here right, right. we have to wait mm -hmm. on it to move in um, so with tar spot if you've had depression in the past or, or it's been even in the area like dr Tolinko said you're likely to see it again given that the conditions are right um, if we don't have the right weather pattern to bring southern rust up here for those of us in the southern half of the state especially uh, we don't we don't have to deal with it so in a year like this where it's still way down south and georgia i think is the furthest north that mm -hmm. it's been found so far um you know and we're well into flowering we, we feel pretty good about being able to control southern rust when it's when it's not here so no, good good addition well darcy i'm I'm sure another myth to bust but um th there's no there's no uh silver bullet coming for uh how to manage tar spot until like you said maybe somebody breeds uh, a hybrid that just has complete resistance to it but even then we know that mother nature always overcomes whatever resistance we build into the plant itself um, is there work that's being done at the university i've had folks ask me that i know it's not your realm but in the botany department uh, looking to uh, select four major genes that contribute to tar spot resistance as opposed to just you know some impressive tolerance um well there is a group particularly with the USDA here in botany, there's a group here that are identified genes or um, things, uh, I guess genes of interest that may provide some of that resistance. So there is some work going on uh, through the USDA more than um, I would say researchers, um, but 
uh, yeah, so there's there's a group of us trying to tackle this across the United States. So I would say there's a wide, you know, not only the industry, but, you know, we have this large network of field crop pathologists. There's a, an extension, but also we've pulled in some breeders. I've worked with those screening some breeding lines for Michigan and Illinois, too, as well, for as they're trying to look at, you know, is there any resistance in some of those um, basic gem lines, the, the precursors to all the stuff to identify, or do we have any gene-for-gene -gene interactions? And I think they've identified a few that there's possibilities there. It's just how long is it going to take to get it into the, the hybrids that we want to grow? And so that's the biggest limitation I've run into with the hybrids we've been using is they, they're still not yielding as good as our susceptible lines and the susceptible is still out yielding on some of those moderately tolerant ones, with, especially with a fungicide added. So we know the fungicides can provide some yield protection there. And until we get that equal, right, the bottom yeah. line is, is optimum yield for the growers and, and how do we get that in. But I think it's a layered effect. I think we got to continue with the layered effect um, using an integrated management plan to, to tackle this disease and all our diseases just because we don't want to push resistance for anything by using just one tactic over and over again as well. Certainly. Oh, very good. Well, Darcy, not to uh, put you in, in a precarious spot, given that as an extension representative, you're the third party arbiter. But within Pioneer, we do feel as though we have a pretty good, um, I guess, portfolio in terms of that that late season plant health that does seem to convey some nice uh, tar spot resilience, maybe maybe not resistance, but good, good moderate tolerance, depending on that individual hybrid itself. But um, appreciate you sharing some of your observations that there is a difference in genetic amongst the industry. Fungicide is a great tool. We might not need it every year. And the most important thing to do is be in your fields and be scouting because this uh, this disease can turn on us in a hurry. So we appreciate your perspective there. Uh, tar spot isn't the only thing that you deal with day in and out. Um, there's been a lot of reports of phytophthora root rot and some other uh, root rots on the soybean side of things. So would you uh, be willing to shine a light on uh, your perspective on uh, phytophthora and some of the bigger rains that we've had move through the area after starting out so dry uh, for the 2023 crop year? And any any thoughts on that matter? Yeah. So I guess I would say on the soybean side of things, I think because of our on, I was the less favorable growing conditions. We've seen the, I, I think we've seen the limitations in the individual fields. There are probably fields that have had a phytophthora issue in the past and they've gotten away with it with really good growing conditions. We, you know, if you got early planting in and we went cold and wet initially and then we went dry. Mm -hmm. And so those limited roots, whatever was limiting the root growth is popping up. So I, I know we've seen phytophthora. I mean, I, in my research trials, I had some really good seed treatment trials because we knocked the socks out of, you know, <laughs> in any where we inoculated with Pythium and Rhizoctonia and Phytophthora um, because the conditions were more conducive for the pathogen to get in. And so anything that was limiting that root growth, whether it's Phytophthora, your Fusariums, your Rhizoctonias, soybean, uh, cyst nematode, you know, whatever's sure. getting into that field, I think that's what we're seeing now pop up is those roots were not growing like they needed to. And then you get those patches in the field. And it is important to figure out what it was, right, for future management decisions, um, whether that's caused by a pythium or, you know, fusarium. You need to know which pathogen is the more prevalent one to make a decision if you're going to put a um, seed treatment on or if you need to select for um, varieties that are more resistant. Um, so I think it's been a tough year on that side where I, we're still, still still seeing those soybean spots pop up now across the region where they've had issues. And then some fields, it may have just been waterlogging and anaerobic conditions, which is not yes. a biotic disease problem. It's an abiotic problem that occurred in those fields. 
No, perfect. So wilting doesn't necessarily mean a disease. It could have just died because it starved for oxygen. Uh, that's that, mm-hmm. that's fair. Uh, Darcy, to pay off uh, something we teased in our last episode, uh, talking about white mold management. Um, I know you and I had a chance to have a little bit of a sidebar conversation a couple weeks back at the agronomy farm. Uh, for those that are listening um, and do deal with those quote unquote white mold hell holes, any suggestions for them as to how to go about the uh, foliar fungicide, uh, you know, timing spray decisions that one might uh, come across this year? Right. So we're looking at, you know, is, are we at flower? Because the pathogen's getting in where those necrotic flowers, you know, where the flowers are dying and that's where the spores are being released. Has the canopy, those are the questions. Is the canopy closed? How is our planting depth? And then looking at the environmental conditions. I say there's a really good tool, uh, going back to Damon Smith's work, the sporecaster would be a tool that pulls in the weather. Have we had the right conditions in that field for the, the, the sclerotinia to be releasing its spores to infect that crop canopy. This disease isn't going to move field to field. It's, you know, you know where you have your patches of it and then making a decision whether we, where we want to go with a fungicide application. Uh, I think we're, we're well into R1, R2 flowering here in in Indiana and some regions. So I have a team going out and spraying our R1 um, applications for these trials up in Northern Indiana. This today, I think is where we're going. So, um, but but we're also looking at do we need to hold on and wait a little later and maybe at you know our two or three timing um, maybe better to get the coverage for white mold to inhibit that infection period and then once we're past the flowering period that risk has gone away and we you know then we got to think about the other diseases too are they moving in as well. Of course. So uh, we've talked about a little bit about root rot pathogens, a little bit about white mold uh, disease management. I know, uh, depending on where you are in the state, there's a number of fields that are in that R3 growth stage. Um, any thoughts on foliar fungicide timing for our other uh, pathogens, things like frog eye leaf spot, um, stribble urine resistance, things of that nature. Any any comment there is uh, I know a lot of folks are either preparing to make fungicide applications or weighing the merit of doing so. I guess I'd still say, where are your soybeans and how is that canopy? Do we want to hold on a little later and maybe maybe not make an R3, but an R4 application? We have work that we're looking at the R3 versus R5 um, across the state to see what happens. And of course, every year it's going to, depending on the season, is going to dictate when the disease has moved in. I have yet to have any frog eye samples, um, see any frog eye or have any samples sent into our clinic yet. So the disease really isn't active in that canopy. So that would be the other thing. As we talked about tar spot, you can also get out and scout for frog eye and um, make that informed decision. Do you know, you know, what was the variety you selected? Is it more susceptible or is it a tolerant resistant line that um, we may need to be able to hold off on that? And then just looking at the canopy, soybeans are putting on new leaves, right? All the time versus corn. Once we get to a certain point, we're not adding leaves. Um, we need to make sure we're protecting that upper canopy and, and maybe holding off a little bit on a, on a fungicide and soybeans may be necessary, particularly since I would still say we're relatively low risk for those diseases. And then as the resistance side, you know, we've continued to document QOI resistance across the state. I think I forget how many counties we're up to. I think we're over half the state where we've confirmed at least one population with QOI resistance. So that just brings up the fact that you need to make sure you're using mixed modes of action. We need to make Mm -hmm. sure we're rotating products to try to minimize that and get the best control we need when the disease is active. Great. So overall, I'd be like scouting is a disease there make an informed decision. Their fungicides are designed to control diseases, make an informed decision if and when you're going to put a fungicide on. Well, well stated. Um, Darcy, I know we've, we've uh, really 
raining through the gauntlet here, but a couple <laughs> questions remain. Okay. Um, shorter plants uh, with respect to corn and beans, both, but maybe more so on corn. Any thoughts on how that may impact um, disease development this year, just with the lack of plant height? I know you still have the same number of leaves out there, but that is a question that uh, came across our desk. And uh, we, we all have our own perspective, but wonder if you have any thoughts on the matter there. I'll let the agronomist handle that on the yield potential, but um, I would say, so if you got a tighter canopy, that's going to change the microenvironment within that canopy. Yeah. And it could change the microenvironment of the diseases that move in. So I guess that would be my one aspect on that size. A tighter canopy may have more moisture surviving there to, you know, promote disease development if you have those conditions that continue to persist. Yeah, of course. And uh, last one, uh, we don't think about it this time of year. A lot of questions about Zyway and, uh, you know, in furrow type of treatments of fungicide and their efficacy versus, uh, you know, more of a traditional foliar applied around the reproductive stages. Again, I know nobody's making a decision on in furrow fungicides right now, uh, but for those that uh, would be interested in your research, uh, Kirsten Wise's research, uh, others around the country, or just your leading thoughts on that subject, uh, we'd be very curious to to know where you stand on that front. So we all were running a uniform trial looking at Zyway. Um, so good. I think we haven't put the final data together, but we've all had individual trials and I've had it for multiple years. And we do see in our work that, you know, it is reducing gray leaf spawn and northern corn leaf blight within that crop canopy. It's not holding on. And if you look at the label, it's not labeled for tar spot or southern rusted mm -hmm. corn. So those are the two diseases you may need to make in a decision later on that, yes, we need to control that. Um, but for gray leaf spot and northern corn leaf blight, we've seen really good results with that reducing disease. If you want to put it up, put it in 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 furrow, two by two, I guess, is the way to die been going to go on. Sure. Um, where we've seen it, you know, and, and if you know, I guess in my mind, if you know that that field has a continual problem with these diseases, it might be a good way to make sure you have protection um, from those diseases and then be out there monitoring as, you know, if we approach R2, R3, if you need to make a fungicide for something else that may have moved in. Very good. Well, uh, it just one anecdote aside, uh, I believe I spoke with one grower this winter in Pulaski County that said, um, it confirmed everything you said, Darcy, that it had no impact on tar spot when, when he looked between his treatments and then spoke with another uh, grower just probably 10 miles to the west in Jasper County said to the line he could see uh, the difference in, uh, you know, tar spot seemed to be controlled versus uh, where he didn't have his eyeway. So very much looking forward to that aggregated research so that we can uh, lean a little bit more definitively than uh, just that anecdotal evidence that seems to be conflicting. But um, really enjoyed our conversation today, Darcy. Want to be respectful of your time. Anything that you would like to leave growers with as they're uh, thinking about uh, the research work that you're doing today, what they should be managing for for the 2023 growing season uh, and otherwise? Well, I would just say be out looking at your crop, understanding what's going on um, in the relative disease. Um, if you have questions, and you're not sure what you got, we have the diagnostic lab here that you can send samples in. I actually have funding to cover Indiana samples. So if you want to send your leaves in to have us confirm what's going on in your field, um, that helps us also monitor even the common diseases, how severe it is in a, in a season. Um, you can follow our website to watch that we talk about these maps. They're, they're available when tar spots active or when we see Southern rust in, we'll be putting them on. Um, and then you can always email me if you have questions or, you know, concerns. We'll try to answer as soon as I can. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, thank, thank you, Dr. Delenko, for the time. And for those that uh, do have a social media account and, and enjoy following along with uh, other folks in the industry, uh, where may they, uh, they do so for you? 
I think if they search Darcy Talenko, but D Talenko is my my call at Twitter on Twitter, and then Indiana Field Crop Pathology.com is the website too as well. So okay, very good. Well, uh, look forward to um, hearing some of the summarized results from uh, Dr. Talenko and her laboratory's work uh, this winter. And um, Darcy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, ben, Brian, for those folks that want to know what's going on in uh, southern and eastern Indiana, where may they do so? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. You can find me on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And uh, for those who want to see what's happening in Northwest Indiana, as we stumble around looking for tar spot, you can do so on Twitter at Cjorn or on Facebook at Cjorn Agronomy. With that, uh, we'll conclude this edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have any questions or concerns as you're making management decisions for this year's crop or planning for next year's, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to your Pioneer sales representative or local field agronomist. Until next time, be safe. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.